Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Braden Enterman. It is so good to be with you here this morning. And I tell you what, I have been looking forward to sharing this message probably the most out of probably any message that I've shared before. And the reason for that is, is that God led me to an illustration during the week, an illustration that David J will be able to really relate to as a pilot. If there's any other pilots here, you'll be able to really understand what's going on here. And this illustration, it's a, it's a real-life story. I think it happened in the 70s or the 80s. But it just brings to light a story that I'm sure uh, many of you are very familiar with. It's the story of the ten maidens. In, in Matthew chapter 25, it, it, Jesus gives three stories that help the, the, the people of God at the end of time, just before Jesus comes, to be warned and to, be, to understand the issues and to be ready when Jesus comes. And so I pray that you are blessed by a, a number of illustrations today that really unpack a familiar story and perhaps see it in a different light. And the sermon is entitled, A Fatal Fixation. Uh, I'm just going to um, offer up a word of prayer as well. Father in heaven, I come before you because I need you, and I know that I can make no positive influence in people's lives of myself. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon me and that we would be blessed as we understand Scripture better today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've got a picture up on the screen here. Where is this? It's New York, right on. This is the island of Manhattan. And can I see the hands of those who have been to New York City? Okay, so we've got a few people that have been to New York City. And for those of you who have been there, you'll understand that New York City is something else. Just having a look there, as basically as far as you can see to any horizon, you've just got buildings upon buildings upon buildings. And in Manhattan Island alone, that's exactly what it looks like. It's just high-rise after high-rise after high-rise. And I had the privilege of going, I say privilege, it was a, it's a bit of an overwhelming, smelly experience. You know, it's a, there's just fumes and it's busy and there's honking horns. But it was a good experience to go to one of these amazing cities in the world. I think it was 2015 and I was able to go up there and I was traveling with my auntie. We went to do music at the general conference session and we decided to make three weeks out of it and we were going to go up and visit the New York City but she got sick and so I decided to go up on my own and so I caught a, a bus from uh, it was Baltimore Baltimore Maryland caught a bus and it took a few maybe three hours or something and it it took me all the way up and I just they plonked me somewhere in there I don't know I couldn't put point to it but somewhere in there the bus dropped me off now I grew up in Ipswich now, Ipswich is very different from New York. And I'm going to show you a picture. And this is the thing. I'm going to uh, apologize for how small the picture is. I couldn't find a picture with higher resolution. They mustn't have cameras in Ipswich. I don't know, like, or, or good ones. But this is the best photo that I could find of Ipswich. And if you really squint, you might be able to see this here. That is the only tall building in Ipswich. Um, there's another one that's maybe 10 stories high. It's like the, um, some international hotel. But that is, that's the only high-rise in Ipswich. That's it. It's called Oaks Aspire. I was going to say visit, but you know, Ipswich, Ipswich, Ipswich is a good place. I often had people tell me at school, can there any good thing come out of Ipswich? I don't know. <laughs> okay, so we're back here. We're in, we're in New York City. So I, 
I caught this bus up, and it's got free Wi-Fi. You know, um, buses have that these days. Um, in America, it's Wi-Fi is everywhere. And see this thing here? Anyone got an iPhone? Has anyone got an iPhone that's maybe a few years old? How does your battery life go these days? Not very good. This is probably end of 2013, so maybe Christmas of 2013-14. And so I had this particular phone, and I was going up in the bus, and you know, of course you connect to free Wi-Fi, especially when you're in another country where you don't have bountiful data supplies. And uh, I was looking at photos from our trip so far. I was Googling things. You know, I'm doing a whole bunch of stuff. Now, that's a long trip, three hours. And I wasn't using it the whole time, because fortunately, the, the Wi-Fi wasn't working. But what was happening, happening to my battery? It was going down. It was going down. And so I, it, it dropped me out here somewhere. And I just, I just literally felt a bit like Mick Dundee, I think. Just being just in, the, in this place, I have no idea where anything is. You can't even see the sun. Because when you're down inside all of those high-rises high and you're walking around, they're so tall that you can't see anything. There's shadows everywhere. You can't even find your sense of direction. You're trying to work out what, where, where things are. And so what did I have to rely on? My phone. I tell you, I tell you what. It is so nice to have some navigation. And I got out, and I wanted to go see Central Park. You know, that's a really nice thing to go and see. And so I looked it up on my maps. And maps, two through power. I looked it up on my maps, and I was like, ah, oh, it's not too far. I should be able to get there on foot. Anything in New York is, is hard to get to on foot. And at that, that point, I hadn't discovered the metro system. But up here, that's Central Park. It's like a big square of just um, greenery, and it's really cool. So I must have got dropped out here, and I decided to run. I had my runners on. I, had, I was packed light. I was prepared. I was well prepared. I wasn't carrying a suitcase or anything. And I started my way up through. And the problem is, you come to the end. You come to an intersection, and what do you have to do? Stop. Wait till the, the thing goes green. You go across, and then you, you're constantly stopping, starting, stopping, starting. And I finally get to Central Park, and I've noticed something. I'm getting down very, very, my, you know the little yellow thing? is It's green, and then it goes to yellow, then it goes to red. It's yellow now. And so I was like, oh, I better not navigate with it. I'll just have a look at the, the maps, you know? And so I spent some time around Central Park. I hired a bike and rode around it. It was awesome. It takes about 20, 20 minutes, half an hour to ride around Central Park. It's beautiful. There's fountains, and I should have put some pictures in. But my, my time there was only just beginning. And my accommodation was actually over in Brooklyn. I don't know why I, I booked accommodation in Brooklyn. It was some dark-ass alley that I had to walk down at like 1 in the morning to find my accommodation. It was a little bit sketchy. But my accommodation, I think, it was over there, if I've got my, if my bearings are right. And I had to go underneath the river and everything to get there. I'm kind of really needing my phone at this point. And I realized I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a real bad way here because I desperately need to call the, uh, the folk at the, at the motel and whatnot. It's just some backpackers. I was just like, I'm just going to, you know, it's cheap, whatever. And so I called the place, and I just wanted to let them know that I'll be getting in quite late tonight. No worries, and I got the address. And I'm like, I better write it down, because this thing could go flat, and I'll have nothing. I might be able to you know, ask some questions somewhere. And I found myself in this situation. And you know, after that, I went and I was searching around. I went up Empire State Building, and I did a whole bunch of things. Went to 
what's that really? Something square? I don't know. Times Square, that's the one. Went there at about midnight, and you would think it's midday because there's so much light and everyone's eating and doing, you know, everyone's hanging out. It's a pretty amazing experience. But my phone, as I was coming down the Empire State Building, was just about to drop dead. And I had no idea how to use the metro system at that point, and I had to get uh, across to Brooklyn. And you know, I had to do this really awkward thing. I asked one of the, the ladies in Empire State Building, I said, that's a PowerPoint over there. Can I, can I just sit down there and just charge my phone? And so I had to sit there for about half an hour to get, my back, you know, get a bit of charge into my phone. From there, I went down into Times Square, and then I made it over. And I actually got to my accommodation and, and got to bed, and everyone was sleeping when I got in there, and I left before they even woke up. But there's a really interesting point I want to bring out here. I'm from Ipswich. And in Ipswich, you just have to literally look around, and you can kind of see where you are. You can get your bearings. You don't really need too much navigation. You can work out which direction things are. You go, OK, that way is Brisbane. Da, da, da. I did not realize how taxing New York City would be on this phone and how much I would need to depend on it. I had no idea. And so I arrived here thinking that I'd be able to just you know, get my way around. I'd just be, no, 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 no. I, could not, I did not know what direction was which. And I was completely dependent on this thing to get me from A to B. I would not have gotten to my accommodation without it. I did not realize how taxing New York City would be on my phone. You know, I was so casual. I was like, you know, just normal usage. And I found myself in a bit of a crisis. My battery was running low. This is illustration number one. And uh, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. And there is so much that we can, uh, I guess, investigate in the parable of the, the foolish and the wise maidens, or the, the ten virgins. There's so many things that we can look here, but there's one question that I want to look at today. Why were the five foolish ones unready? Why were they running out of oil? You know, when the other guys clearly were able to get oil, why? Why did they come to this place where they had no oil? How did they get there? How did they get there? We'll read through the story. Verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the virgins said to the wise, uh, sorry, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. 
Question. Those foolish maidens, did they realize how taxing the waiting period would be on their oil supplies? No, they didn't. In their minds, how do you think the evening would have panned out? And, you know, I was reading uh, Christ's object lessons on this very, uh, very parable. Did you know that Jesus was actually sitting on the Mount of Olives and he was actually looking down to a house and it was all lit up. There was music, there was celebration, there was all this, this noise and Jesus was watching it and he actually saw ten young ladies there. And he watched this story play out in front of him and he actually was talking to his disciples about it. This is a real thing that actually happened. I imagine those five, well actually all of them slept. I imagine the evening turned out very differently from what they expected. You know, if I'm going to a wedding, I have a certain expectation on how things are going to turn out. You know, I don't expect the bride to be 10 hours late. Fashionably late, but not 10 hours. We have expectations. We think we have a picture of what things are, how things are going to turn out, and then they don't turn out and we're unprepared for it. Um, those, those foolish virgins did not realize how tax, taxing that evening would be on their oil supplies. And I just want to just, just, just challenge you now to think. Why were some ready and others not? How come some had oil? What were they thinking? What was before that evening? What were they thinking about? What were their priorities? What was important to them? And the other ones, what were they thinking about? What were they focused on before that evening? I don't know about you guys, but I have people in my life that when I go to visit them, it's a really important thing. And you know, the last thing in the world, if I was to go visit my, my, my family or my girlfriend or something like that, I'm not going to play, you know, play games with my fuel levels in my car. Are you guys like that? If you're going to go visit your loved one, you're going to do a big trip, do you go, oh, that might be enough fuel? I've got half a tank. It should get me there, maybe. hope so. Uh, you know what, on a, on a Friday, if I'm going to drive down to Cedarvale, if I'm going to drive up to my family or whatever, I don't, I don't, play, I don't play games with, with my time on Friday. I prioritise fueling up my car. And if it's a little bit expensive, you know, I don't go, oh, it's a bit too much money, I'll just put in, put in half a tank. That should get me there. I, I fill it right up, it doesn't matter what, what the price is. I fill my tank up to the max. It's a priority for me because I don't want anything anything to stop me from getting to the destination. I don't want anything to stop me from getting to the people that I care about and love. I don't want anything to stop me. You know, the last thing in the world, you know, the last thing I want is to shoot off here from a Sabbath and drive somewhere to, to visit someone that I care about and have to call up Lyle and say, hey Lyle, I'm just um, two and a half hours down the road, down the Pacific motorway, can, uh, down, down the M1, can you, can you come and help me out? I'm a bit stuck. I'm prepared for it. I'm thinking about it. All my, my whole desire is set on going home or whatever it is, and I'm fueling up, I'm getting ready for it. So why were these ladies unprepared? Why were these ladies unprepared? What was important to them in their lives? Where was their focus? Where was their focus? You know, we, we could really jump into the imagery here, and I just want to just, just, just state a few things. In the Bible, a lamp represents the word of God. The Bible says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
The, the lamp represents the Word of God. The oil represents the Holy Spirit from the book of Zechariah. And come and get the verses from me if you want. And this flame is like the, this beautiful revelation of the glory of God to those around us. These people Jesus is using to describe the people living just before the end of time, the people who have God's Word and who are filled with the Holy Spirit and who are sh- shining light to the world, you know, these, these foolish ones are not hypocrites. These people aren't running around doing stuff. They are hanging out with people who know truth. They have truth. They are filled with the Holy Spirit, but the oil runs out. These are not bad people. These are people who have tasted and experienced that God is good, but the oil doesn't last the distance. It's kind of like the parable where the the, the farmer is sowing the seed. You know, there's only one soil type where the birds just pick it up and it doesn't grow at all. You know, the one with the rocks is, how, is, a, is, a, is the parallel to this particular, the foolish virgins. It actually does grow, and it is experiencing growth, but there's rocks beneath the surface, and it doesn't last the distance. It actually, when the, when the, when the sun comes out, it just doesn't have root. It, doesn't able, it isn't able to draw the water that it needs. These aren't bad people. They have experienced God. They have the word of God. They know the truth. They have experienced the joy of the spirit, the transformation of soul, and yet they are unready because the oil runs out. I want to ask you this question. Do we have a just conception of how taxing the final events of earth's history and the closing events will be on our spiritual life? Is it a bit like me when I went to New York? I had no idea how taxing New York would be on my, on my iPhone. You know, that iPhone was my connection to help. In America, 911. That's my connection right there. My iPhone is my connection to my family. My iPhone is my connection to directions. In a, in a, in a place where there's just... You know, they, they toot their horns all the time in New York. I don't understand. Um, I, was in, I was in Chicago as well, and I couldn't believe it. There's one person who didn't realize that you can turn left when it's a red light, uh, something like that. And this taxi driver behind is like, ah, and holds it for about maybe 20 seconds. Just holds it. And just beeping the horn and does it again. It's, it's, it's another world over there. It's confusing and you need directions. You just cannot sniff your way around New York. You need to know where things are and you need to know how to get to your destination. Do we realize how taxing the final events of Earth's history will be on our spiritual life? Do we realize? You know, Ellen White says this, that most things are worse in anticipation than in reality. Have you found that? You know, you're worrying about an exam, you're worrying about an interview, you're worrying about this, you're worrying about that, and you go, hey, that wasn't so bad. What was I worrying about? But you know what she says? Not so with the end of time. Our anticipation cannot fully and justly comprehend how challenging and, 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 and just terrible this time will be. It is worse than our imagination. It's not better than our imagination or our expectations. Do you realize how challenging the days just before us will be? When you could have your life on the line because of a day, where you could have your, as, as the book of Revelation speaks about, your finances are in jeopardy because of the day that you worship on. 
Your family could be falling apart because some might think, oh, I don't care about this anymore, and you might be the only one left. Do you realize how taxing it's going to be on you? Oh, Brayden, this is, this is sounding pretty negative. This is sounding a little bit overwhelming. But I want to tell you this. There were five who were ready. And you know, can, you, can someone tell me, how were they ready, those, those, um, those, those five maidens? What do they have? Extra oil. And what did they do to get it? They bought it. When you purchase things, I, I had to make a rather sizely purchase this week, and it was a, um, I was upgrading my computer. This is my old one because I couldn't get my new one to work, but I'm giving this one to my sister. I wanted her to have a good computer in, in year 12. And so I upgraded, and it, it, it cost. You know, I could go out and get a, a $200 laptop. They do exist. I could do that. But this has lasted me seven years, and it could last me for another three. I'm really impressed with the, um, and I'm not doing an Apple sales pitch here. Um, I'm really impressed with this. And because of it, I'm willing to pay the price. You know, it's a little bit sad when you go cha-ching, and, and you just see, you see the, the bank balance go down. But I was willing to pay for it. And this thing, I put it through. I've, I've, I use it every single day for seven years, pretty much, and it's just held on. I've been willing to pay the price. You can get oil if you want. And I plead with you to have oil, to have the Holy Spirit in abundance with extra in store, but it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. What's it going to cost you? Time. Prayerful energy. Attention. More time. More energy. More time. That's what it's going to cost you. And my challenge is to you, before we even get to our, our final illustration, it is worth every fibre of your strength, every fibre of your attention to be ready. You know, when you're in Ipswich, you don't really need to depend on your phone too much. Especially when you've grown up there, you just kind of sniff your way around. It's very, very simple. It's not a very big place. But when you get to New York, you need that phone so much. You have to depend upon it with every fibre of your being. And that's kind of what it's like for us now, comparing with the time that is just before us. Our present experience with the Holy Spirit in times of ease, will that be enough? If our faith falls apart when we do not get a car park, when something just doesn't turn up in the mail on a certain day, if we just are ready to question God and fall apart, then, friends, are we ready for the time to come? Are we ready for the time to come? And so what we need to do is to realize, okay, I've got my present experience, that the flame is burning. We do have, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing transformation on a daily basis. I'm growing in the Word of God. And yes, God is helping me to show love to other people, but I need an extra store. And I need to lay down every, everything that I've got to get it. It's going to cost me, but I'm going to be filling up that jug. I want to have a deeper experience, a more full and a richer experience with the Holy Spirit preparing for that time. I want to have a full tank of fuel to be able to get there. I don't want to conk out on the way. I don't care if I have 10 times more than I need. I just want to have enough. Is that your desire? I want to have enough. Now to our illustration. David, you may be familiar with this story. You've probably heard about it before. 
United Airlines Flight 173, this plane here is a DC-8, it's got four engines. And I believe it was the, the 70s or the 80s, I can't remember when it was. But this particular flight went down in history as one of the most confusing and memorable, or should I say infamous. It was a very, very sad situation. The captain of, I think he had about 27 years flying experience, his name was Malburn McBroom. And he took off from JFK Airport in New York and flew with a stopover in, in Denver, Colorado. And from there, he, he flew his, his plane up to Portland. Now, I love how that particular graphic just does that so smoothly. It's just like, whew, whew. I tell you what, this last bit here wasn't so smooth. As they were nearing Portland, the pilot with his, he had an a, a engineer and a co-pilot and a first officer and various things, as they were nearing, they all got connection with the, with the tower and whatnot, and they, got, they were cleared to land, and they started their descent. And as David would know, at a certain point, you need to lower the landing gear. And as the, the, the pilot lowered the landing gear, there was a massive clunk, so, such a powerful clunk that it just shook the entire plane. All the passengers were frightened, they were scared, and they started talking to each other, what in the world was that? What do you think that was? Because the plane just was shaking when it, when it happened. It kind of worried the pilot because he was looking at his three little green lights, which indicate that the landing gear is down properly, and one of them was flickering. It was, it was showing green, but it was flickering, and he's like, what in the world is going on? He sent his engineer back, and he told the guys at the airport at Portland, he said, I'm, I'm going around, I'm going to a holding pattern, we're going to sort this thing out. We've got some problems with the landing gear. And he banks the plane around and he turns around. The engineer then walks out with a torch. And he walks down the, the row and he asks the row if they can get out of their seats for a second. And he's looking out over the wing. And on those particular planes, there's a little tiny mechanical indicator that pops up on the wing uh, because you can't, you can't see the landing gear. So it shows, okay, that the landing gear is down. And he's like, it says it's down. And he checks them all and, and the landing gear is down. But the pilot, he's just... He's just overwhelmed with just concern for his passengers. You know, he's responsible and he's flown many flights and he's probably had many situations and the last thing he wants is to cause pain and suffering to his, his passengers. The runway is in sight, but he's banked around again. He's just, he's just thinking, he's like, okay, I want you to instruct, he's telling his cabin crew, I want you to instruct the, the passengers this is the brace position. We're going we're to be landing down on the runway with perhaps some faulty uh, landing gear. And if that happens, you know, we need you. And so he's, he's just thinking about it. He's fixated on this landing gear problem. And he just is just so... I, I love this guy, how attention to detail is. He just doesn't want to cause any pain to his, to, to his, his, um, his staff and also to the passengers. They're about an... It's about 50 minutes now that they've been in the air circling. And he's just, everything, they're talking about it, everything that could possibly, everything that could possibly, you know, they could check, they checked. And next thing, there was a crisis. One engine powered down. Then a second. The plane is able to, to run like that, but the next thing, the third and the fourth engines fire down. And the pilot and his crew are forced to make a crash landing in Portland City, in suburbia. I'll show you some photos of the, of the crash. 
they land, he landed this plane and I take my hat off to this pilot. He could have killed so many lives, but he, he, he was able to, to land the plane in a wooded area and was just, just missed a whole bunch of, uh, of apartments and whatnot. And the sad thing is that 10, 10 people died in that crash. Two staff and eight passengers were killed in that crash. And you know, you're, almost, you're probably almost having a sigh of relief that it's not everyone. But eight, eight, 10 human beings died that day. And investigators were so confused. How in the world could a plane in sight of the runway crash land in the city? How did that happen? Investigators got the, got the black boxes out and they started listening through and they were just trying to put together all of the pieces. And do you know what they found? It ran out of fuel. You might be thinking, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. But there's powerful lessons to be learned here. How could you miss the fuel gauge? It says like zero. How can you, how can you miss that? Where was their attention? Landing gear. The reason why this sermon is, is, is entitled A Fatal Fixation is because of this illustration right here. Was the pilot's intentions good? Yes. But his fixation on the faults, the landing gear, in the, in the landing gear, it cost the life of 10 people. Do you know that his, his, his staff, his engineer and his co-pilot and his first officer, they were actually warning him that the fuel was low, but he was so fixated on solving this problem that he wouldn't listen. You know, at times they'd be like, oh, um, do we have enough fuel for this? And he's just he's focused. He's just so focused. He's fixated on the landing gear problem. And eventually that one engine powers down and the recording, you can hear it. He's like, what's going on? And the, one of the first officers says, fuel. It's almost like I've been trying to tell you for so long. Fuel. And you know, they would look at each other, these, the, the guys in the, in the cabin, and they'd be looking at each other going, when, it, when the pilot would make a decision, but they, tr- they trusted to his decision making and they thought he knew what he was doing. A fatal fixation. A fatal fixation which cost the life of 10 people. They had plenty. You know, the, it's not the worst thing in the world to do a, uh, a landing with faulty uh, landing gear. You just do a, a, a skid in it. You've got all the fire, fire department there. They're able to put the fire out. It's most times, and you might be able to give me the percentage, David, but it, it turns out okay most of the time. Sometimes it doesn't, but you've got a good chance of getting down with faulty landing gear. They could have landed over and over and over again, but they crash landed into, the, into a Portland suburb. A fatal fixation. I want to tell you this, friends. We are in sight of the runway. We're about to touch down into eternity. We are so close. Where is your focus? Do you have a fatal fixation on the faults of the people that are sitting next to you in church? Do you have a fatal fixation on the faults of others? It might be the way that the church is is going or various things. Where is your attention? Is it on the faults? 
is on the fuel. While you're looking at the faults in others, your fuel level will be going down because I tell you, friends, it takes a lot of power and a lot of fuel to keep a plane in the air. David was sharing me that to fly a, a big plane across to America, it takes over 100 tonne of fuel. That's a lot of fuel. To keep, and I want to say this, to keep you in the air spiritually, having that spark, having that combustion, keeping you moving forward, it takes a lot. You need the Word of God. You need the, the lamp and you need the, the oil, the Holy Spirit in order to have some spark, to have some flame. You desperately need those things. Where is your eyes? Have you found yourself diving down a theological rabbit warren that God doesn't want you to go down? Have you found yourself perhaps focusing attention on something or getting caught up in something? Where is your attention? Because your fixation could be fatal. Even it might be good. It might be a good fixation. Trying to solve the problem is a good thing, right? But I want to tell you, friends, the most important thing, rather than trying to solve the problems of everyone around you, the most important thing for you is to know the fuel levels. And not just to go, I think I can make it, because the pilot actually, crazily, he realized he had about 1,000 pounds or something like that. I don't know what it was, but 1,000 pounds of, of, of aviation fuel or whatever left. And he said, how many, he asked for a calculation, how much can that give me? Around you know, 14 minutes. And it's going to take 15 minutes for them to, to make that next bank. And he takes another bank. He's so focused on solving this problem. You know, some, the investigators put some proposals together and it actually has saved the lives of many, many passengers from that time forward because rather than just submitting to the judgment of one person, now they're told to, whatever they see, they've got to, they've got to talk it out so everyone's eyes are on the job and it saved many people's lives. A decade went, went by after those things and there was no major, no major calamities at all. You know, this particular problem with this you know, the fuel problem, that happened to, I know of three planes. One of them, every single person on a, on a jumbo jet died. Hundreds of people were dead because the same thing happened. And you know that little flat flickering light? It was just a bulb problem. It was fine. And the reason why they clunked down so hard is simply because there was a, a bolt that had rusted out and fallen out. And when the landing gear came down, it, instead of going down, it went bang. That's the only thing. There was no real problem. There was no real problem, but he was so fixated on it that it cost the life of 10 people. Is the message pretty clear from what we've been looking at? And I want to challenge you, just what those wise people, the wise ladies said to the foolish, go and buy for yourselves. I can't do it for you. Lyle can't do it for you. You need to go and purchase for yourself, and it's going to cost you personally, but it's every bit worth it. It's every bit worth it because the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, having Christ living within us, revealing in our lives his character, that is what it's all about. You know, I was reading the final thing, and I'll say this in closing. At the end of Christ's Object Lessons, the, the chapter on the, the ten virgins is the last chapter. And the whole last half of it is all about letting our light shine revealing God's character to the people around us and how the last message to be given to the world is a revelation of the character of God. The only way that you can be a part of that, the only way that you can reveal God's character is if you have the Holy Spirit. 
Don't depend just on truth alone. You may have your Bibles and be able to give me answers left, right and center, but unless you have Christ living within, unless you're experiencing humility and, and grace and forgiveness and the power to live like Jesus, it's not worth a dime. A lamp without fire is, is, is useless. And so I would like to invite you, if, if you would like to personally, whatever it takes this year, whatever it costs, check those fuel levels and prepare, gather oil, whatever it takes, for the time to come. Would you raise your hand if that's something that you want to do more of this year? And I want to just, this fatal fixation, wherever your eyes are, whatever they're focused on right now, I want to encourage you to turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father in heaven, with all of our hearts, we desire to be ready when you come. And I want to pray that my eyes would be fixed on Jesus, fixed on the runway. We are so close. We're about to touch down into eternity. And I want to pray to you, Father, that we would allow nothing, nothing to keep us from the preparation that is, that is so important for this time. Father, I want to pray that we would not underestimate how the, the end times and the final events, how taxing that will be on our walk with you. May we not be content with today, with our condition and our experience with you today, but may we press on and may we desire our closer walk with thee, not just what we see around us. May we not measure ourselves by the people around us, but may we go to your word and have the most beautiful experience with the most amazing saviour and be ready to say, this is our God, we have waited for him. And may you say to us, enter into the joy of the Lord. Be with us, Lord God, this day. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abn That is radio at the number 3abn Australia, all one word. .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support.
Thanks. So- 
Why me, Lord? What have I ever done to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? Tell me, Lord, what did I ever do? That was worth loving you or the kindness you've shown. Lord, help me, Jesus. I've wasted it, so help me, Jesus. I know. Oh. 
Enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Following the Diet of Worms, Luther was still under a lot of pressure to recant and compromise in his positions with Rome. He was even threatened with banishment, but he would not be moved. He even said he would give up assurance of a safe conduct, but never his positions on the Word of God. As Luther left Worms and traveled across the country, he was warmly received by the German people. But there were still many people who wanted to kill Luther, and the emperor himself said that as soon as the assurance of his safe conduct should expire, that measures should be taken to end Luther's work. The elector of Saxony, Frederick, devised a plan with some of Luther's friends to capture him and keep him hidden for some time. He was taken here to Wartburg Castle, a place kept so secret that even the elector Frederick did not know that he was being kept here. Luther's enemies rejoiced, thinking that he had been defeated, but this time for Luther would prove to be a double blessing. Not only did it withdraw him from the heat of the battle, but it also took him away from the public praise and adulation, something that can spiritually maim even the strongest of men. It was here in this room that Luther stayed during his time here at the castle. Like the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation as a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos, while Luther was hiding here in this castle, he translated into German the New Testament. He would translate the Old Testament later, after his return to Wittenberg. Another challenge to the Reformation would now appear on the horizon. In Luther's absence, other reformers had arisen whose message was different to that of Luther, and it was drawing away a lot of people and dividing the movement. In particular, some people thought that it was acceptable to use violence as a means to abolish the mass and to rise up against the oppressors. Thomas Munzer was a leader of this movement. This news was relayed to Luther, and he felt a deep burden for his people back in Wittenberg as he thought of them as a shepherd thinks of their sheep. Despite having no assurance of a safe conduct, he left Wartburg Castle and headed for Wittenberg. Luther's return caused a great stir, and the church filled at the first opportunity to hear him speak. Luther stood up and reaffirmed that the mass was a bad thing and ought to be abolished, but that no one should be torn from it by force. It was not their job to force the conscience of anyone, no matter how strong they felt about the matter. Luther was able to check this uprising for a while, but it would arise later on with devastating results when Thomas Munzer himself was killed. Every time there is a true revival, Satan brings a false one along. 
Even so, at the end of time, there's going to be a true revival of godliness, and then there's going to be a false revival as well. May we be faithful to God that we will be part of the true revival that will take place at the end of time. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. Beijing. Today, China's capital is home to some 21 million people and is a vast metropolis of diverse peoples from not only all over China, but all over the world. There is archaeological evidence that dates the Chinese civilization back to the year 2400 BC, and Beijing contains much of that history, from its houses and waterways, many city walls, public buildings, and of course, the famous Forbidden City. The influence of this history can be seen and felt everywhere in Beijing. But there is one historical site in Beijing which rivals all others and has become the unofficial mascot for not just the city, but for the country. That is the Great Temple of Heaven, or as it is more accurately known, the altar of heaven. Built almost 600 years ago, this unmistakable complex with its remarkable architecture has made it one of the most recognizable religious sites in the world. The complex of the altar of heaven covers a staggering 2.7 square kilometers, making it the largest religious site on the earth. The altar of heaven was built and dedicated to the worship of Shangdi. And yet, within the entire complex, there is not a single image or idol of Shangdi. Speaking about the sacrifices and the worship services which were conducted at the Altar of Heaven site, the philosopher Confucius wrote, He who understands the ceremonies of the sacrifices to heaven and earth would find the government of a kingdom as easy as to look into the palm of his hand. This site in Beijing that still stands here today is a tangible legacy of China's oldest religious practices. One that has lasted for more than 4,000 years and it only ended recently in 1911. Not a single one of the 18 dynasties that ruled throughout China's long history failed in their obligation to worship Shangdi. Although there were periods when portions of the ceremony were corrupted, the sacrificial system known as the border sacrifices was acknowledged by every ruling family, even as dynasties rose and fell. And even when the imperial capital was moved to Beijing in the year 1421, the worship of Shangdi by the emperors in the border sacrifices were brought along to the new capital. The religious site is comprised of three main groups of constructions. The first, the Hall of Prayer for Good Harvest. 
and then the imperial vault of heaven. And lastly, the circular altar mound. The Hall of Prayer for Good Harvest is a magnificent triple-tiered circular building. It is built completely from wood and yet without a single nail used in its construction. The hall is built on three levels of marble stone and the roof is even one tier higher than the Emperor's Palace in the Forbidden City. This shows the supremacy which Shangdi had in comparison even to the Emperor. It was at the Hall of Prayer that the Emperor would pray to Shangdi for protection and a good harvest. Standing in the center of the complex is the Imperial Vault of Heaven. This is a single-tiered circular building built on a single level of marble stone. This building is surrounded by a smooth circular wall known as the Echo Wall. In this building is a simple tablet with four characters on it, which read, Supreme Lord of the Great Heaven. This is the only reference in the entire complex of who this site was built for, for the worship of Shangdi. There are no idols or images. The ancestors just left these four simple yet significant characters. The last construction in the complex is the circular altar mound. This is the actual altar in the complex. This is the place where the sacrifice to Shangdi would be made by the emperor during the border sacrifices. There is an undeniable link between the ancestors and Shangdi, which has been embodied in the Altar of Heaven complex. The legacy of the Altar of Heaven will take us on a quest to discover who was Shangdi and why was the worship of Shangdi so important to the ancestors. Join me next time as we explore the ancestors. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.